Welcome to Bicycle Retail Radio, the bicycle industry podcast that brings retailers, vendors, advocates, and thought leaders to the mic for honest discussions about the latest issues facing retailers while taking an in-depth look at the person within the profession. I'm Heather Mason, MBDA president. The conversation today is with Zachary Shefflin, founder of Civilized Cycles. I love this conversation with Zach. We chatted about the developing e-bike market, using e-bikes for true transportation vehicles and what it will take us to get there. We also touched on the importance of the dealer-supplier relationship and finally launching a new e-bike brand to market. There's lots of great nuggets in this one. Hope you enjoy. All right, Zach, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation here. I want to introduce Civilized Cycles to our listeners. Listeners, Civilized Cycles, they build e-bikes that have comfort, utility, and the active safety of a scooter or light motorcycle, but with the ease of use and legality of a bicycle. We're going to dive into that deep here in a couple of minutes, but we're talking about true transportation vehicles, unlike anything you've ever seen before. You have to go to civilizedcycles.com and see these bikes. So many integrated features. We're talking very premium, very high-end, attention to detail in the build. I even had the chance last fall to ride one in New York City myself and had a blast. So, Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, we have a great opportunity on the podcast today to really launch Civilized Cycles to our listener base. I'm familiar with the bikes, but I don't think many of our listeners are, so I wanted to have you on as an expert to talk about what you're seeing in the transportation, bicycles for transportation field, as an expert bringing what we call the world's most innovative bike to market. So let's talk about that right off the bat. That website homepage, civilizedcycles.com, you're calling the Civilized Model 1 the world's most innovative bike. Tell me more. Well, I know it's a bold claim, but you know that's what we have to do in the world of marketing. But I think the best way to start is to kind of explain our approach to design and how we got here. What we saw in the world was that everybody was making bicycles with motors and kind of being like, we're done. And I came from the motorcycle and scooter industry. I was the founder and head of Vespa Soho, which was the biggest Vespa dealership in the country for a number of years. And we, in the tens, we started adding all sorts of electric product, e-bikes, in long tails, a uh, whole range of stuff. And we just watched our customers play Goldilocks. And you know what we saw coming was that in the world, the light motorcycle scooter is sort of the dominant global transportation platform in almost everywhere but the US. And we've never really had that here because we've always treated the light motorcycles all the same as the heavy motorcycles. We've never really created a market. What I saw coming from that side of the business was this incredible opportunity to create a platform that does everything that is the proven global transportation platform, but in an e-bike package. And this is simply because my customers were telling me day in, day out what they wanted. They wanted something that could carry a couple of people comfortably. They didn't want to be beat up doing that. They wanted to carry some stuff and they wanted all of this in a no license, no registration, no no involvement with the DMV package that they could just buy and, and use. And I saw where technology was going, and that's sort of where we started putting together the vision of this bike, which is that we can do all of those things with modern technology, and we can still keep it a bicycle so it has all the benefits of exercise and health and accessibility, but really look at technology as access to a wider audience. 
So, you know, we knew that the vast majority of Americans, for example, are accustomed to cars as their primary transport. And asking people to cycle has for a long time been asking them to sacrifice or suffer on some level. And, you know, most consumers are pretty reluctant to do that. You know, those of us who are athletic and enjoy the outdoor experience, you know, we might be willing to take a few potholes and, you know, some some painful, achy muscles, but many are not. And I saw the opportunity to put together a suite of technologies that could all, you know, address the non-rider and entice them into the world of riding, not because it's green or environmentally responsible, but because it's simply better in their life. And then they can pat themselves on the back afterwards and be like, oh, you know, we're doing the right thing for the planet. But my whole goal was how do we get people behavior to change by giving them solutions that simply work better in their life? And so for us, that meant addressing kind of some really big holes in the basic bicycle game. You know, your basic bike, love them to death and riding them my whole life. I love the sporting experience, but you're not going to, you know, take your wife to the restaurant. You're not going to take your kids to school comfortably on it once they're over a certain size. You are not going to be able to easily manipulate a bunch of stuff. We all have stuff in our lives, whether it's, you know, a heavy laptop you don't want to wear slung over your back or a grocery run, or the stuff that you were wearing when you were riding that you want to now not carry into the restaurant with you. So we really focused on addressing the issues of people, stuff, and the psychological comfort of being on a bike. Those were our our three big areas that we wanted to focus on. So to do that, we started by saying, you know, a suspension is a must. And this is one of our more controversial and kind of surprising things in the bike and the least visible But we kind of started with the concept that most people, it's quite terrifying to hit a pothole or a bump at speed when you are not a trained rider. And that moment of terror is a disincentive to ride. And in our cars, we have no expectation of like swerving around every pothole and spending 50% of our time paying attention to the surface of the road, or somehow in bikes we do. And I wanted to bring that incredible technology that's existed for a long time, you know, the cross-country mountain bike technology where you can, you know, pound over a route at 30 miles an hour and you don't even feel it. We wanted to bring that tech to the masses, to people who don't stand up on their pedals, who aren't in a crouch, but who are rather head above their hips, sitting on a seat, and who main thing is to not be frightened when they have something on the road that is otherwise disturbing. And so we created a bike that has a completely upright kind of Dutch or beach cruiser style seating position, but is fully suspended. And to do that, we had to invent some technology that kind of didn't exist in the bicycle world, which was a system by which normal people could make that work for them. We knew that normal consumers were never going to get out a ruler and a rubber band and a pump, have their buddy hold the bike and jump up and down on it a couple of times and measure the sag. We just knew that wasn't ever going to happen. We also knew that we couldn't sell a bike that worked for a 120-pound rider and for two 200-pound riders. Like You just couldn't build that suspension. So the first thing that we did is we designed a integrated automated SAG system. So basically, at the touch of a button, the bike will run through a sequence where it resets the SAG on the suspension. And for those of you who are not familiar with that, that's basically the position of the suspension where we're matching the spring rate to the weight of the rider. And that's kind of the magic of making the suspension work correctly because it puts the suspension in the right range. So when you go over a bump, there's enough suspension to squish and enough suspension to drop when you go into a hole. And that's what makes everything kind of feel great. So that was our first big sort of technological piece on here. And 
it's pretty fun to watch people do it for the first time. It's, it's almost like a low rider. You push the button, the bike kind of drops and it pumps itself back up again to just the right level. And then the thing is just like an air ride, just a complete Cadillac. It's really fun. I felt that in New York City when I took it out around just, you know, the couple blocks that I did. It was amazing and it was fun setting it up. So I definitely recall that. Yeah. And the, the other nice thing about that is it makes it comfortable and psychologically comfortable to cruise at higher speeds. So, you know, if you like a 20 mile an hour cruise, no longer are you going to white knuckle that. That's something that's completely relaxed because you're now just floating over whatever kind of stuff is going on on the road. Number two, we looked at passenger capability. The suspension is actually a big piece of that because I knew that most passengers are not going to want to take a very significant hit to the tush when riding as a passenger. When you're a passenger, you don't see what's coming on the road. You rarely have support for your feet where you could stand up and not take that hit. So for a passenger use, we knew that the suspension was super, super essential. My wife, who is the kind of woman who will smack me in the helmet if I, you know, take a corner too fast on a motorcycle, will, you know, happily jump on the back of this thing and and talk my ear off as we, you know, go to the restaurant or bar. It's it's just a lovely way to lovely way to travel. To do that, we made a really big step through in the frame. That allows you to hold the bike while someone is already on the back and still be able to get on the bike. You know, you don't have to kick over or lift your leg high over a bar so you can you can be braced for carrying a passenger. And then the last piece of the puzzle that we put together was the panniers. So you may notice that the rear wheel on the bike is fully enclosed. It's kind of a bunch of reasons to do this. One is that we keep all the mechanical rotating stuff completely clean, dry, and safe away from things like scarves and shoelaces and kids' toes and all sorts of stuff like that. And two, it actually provides a surface that you can grip with your knees. So when you're sitting on the back of it, you can grip it with your knees and this is particularly important with dudes because dudes hate hugging other dudes on bikes. I don't know, you know, why it's such a big deal, but you can actually sit back there and hold with your legs like a horse and you can actually be quite comfortable as a passenger. The last thing on those panniers is they actually open. So on each side of the bike, those panels pull outwards. And this is another one of our patents where it forms a rigid box once it's in the out position. And that allows you to easily load things in it. It allows you to have a nice hard surface that you can clean easily. It's not like a soft bag, which, you know, gets kind of funky pretty quickly. They lock so you can walk away from them with your stuff in the bike, kind of like the trunk on a car. I really love this for wearing a helmet on a regular basis because I don't like carrying the helmet with me and I don't like hanging it on the handlebars. So here, you know, my wife and I can hop off the bike. We could throw our helmets in the bike. If I've got gloves or something, they can go in. That's super handy. In the bike, we can still carry a lock inside the pannier. So there's no rattling, jangling lock on the outside of the bike. It's just, you know, nicely tucked into a little strap in the pannier. And it just makes that kind of on-off use experience very clean, very simple, and, you know, frankly, elegant compared to the standard, you know, backpack full of stuff or, you know, kind of dressing one way for the ride and then a different way for everything else in your life. The bike is designed to keep you as clean as possible, not only in the rear, but in the front with a really deep fender. I'm very proud that this is a bike that you can ride in New York City after it's rained with white sneakers and they stay white. So, <laughs> I mean, there's so much innovation there. And before, you know, we keep, you know, progressing through our conversation here, talking about the history, the startup, how you're working with retailers. I mean, you're investing so much into this. You must have done some data and some research just about 
the future of the e-bike market and how we are going to shift to the need for true transportation vehicles. So as like an expert who I'm, I'm sure has invested a lot of time there as you've developed a product for this market, can you speak to your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that we're in this really magical time right now in the U.S. e-bike market. And, you know, we're seeing sort of a shadow of the future in the European e-bike markets. And this is a time where we're transitioning from the market being predominantly oriented towards and catering to sports and leisure as the primary markets. If you are an athlete who likes cycling, man, the world is your oyster. You've got so many incredible, wonderful bikes to choose from. But the range of bikes for people who are not cyclists and who are simply looking to get around and do stuff and have these be much more of an object akin to a car in their life, I just felt that that was what was A, kind of lacking, and B, where the future really is. If you look at mature bicycle markets like Amsterdam, you look at form factors that are popular there, what do you see? You see big step-throughs, both for men and women, just because it's easier to deal with a wider range of clothing and a wider range of riders with a big step-through. You don't have issues of hip mobility and so forth, tight clothes, et cetera. Two, you see incredibly upright riding positions with head above hips, you know, hands in a relaxed position. No one is doing a push-up over there while they're riding. It's just a different it's a different modality and a different style of riding. And then, of course, you see a huge range of cargo and accessories that people put on their bikes to try to integrate them better in their life, whether it's little kid seats or, you know, fabric panniers or, you know, the larger cargo type bikes. Those are all, all people problem solving to add those other elements in their life. What's kind of unique and different about the United States that I think that's going to make us kind of even go further in that direction is that our legal structures promote really more vehicle. So with the European speed limit of 25 kph compared to the US speed limit of 20 miles an hour or the speed pedelec of 28, we're really kind of talking about different animals and different vehicles. You know, a rigid frame bike capped at 16 miles an hour works pretty good. And, you know, you can get a lot of use and function out of that. And since the speeds are relatively limited, the suspension issue isn't hugely in the forefront, and maybe unless you're carrying a passenger who doesn't like to get beat up. But as you look at the higher speeds that were allowed here, A, I think the higher speeds are good because we have everything much more spread out and it just keeps us safer and more aligned with our traffic speeds. But it really allows for the opportunity of a creation of a platform that's a little bit closer to how Europe, it's not all the way there, but it's a little bit closer to how Europe has kind of viewed 50cc scooters as sort of like the entry to the two-wheel market. And, you know, with a 28 mile an hour, one horsepower speed pedelec, we can do everything that you would never want to do with a 50cc scooter, but we just do it better. We do it hundred pounds lighter. We do it way cleaner on the environment. We do it with better ride quality. And, you know, right now, you know, we're a new brand with relatively low volume. So our price points are on the higher side, you know, with volume and time, all of that can come down. My belief is that the future of the, the US market in particular, you're going to find e-bikes that are in design concept and essence a lot closer to cars and light motorcycles than to pure bicycles with motors. I just think that the consumers are going to demand the other features that they're used to and the other experiences that they're used to. And that is going to drive the evolution of bikes. And it's going to mean a shift from sort of the current model, which is a bit of a menu model where you have a frame and a list of component manufacturers that you hang on to ever more integrated, you know, kind of more like what Van Moff is doing where, you know, everything on it is Van Moff and it's all of a piece. 
And I think that's the future. Specialized is also doing a, a great job with that. I think that's actually the future of bike design is further integration, further sort of vertical integration in the supply chain and a more complete, coherent consumer experience that's not oriented around brands or parts, but rather around what it does for you in your life and how it makes you feel and some of these more traditional consumer good ways of thinking. I can 100% see the industry going there and see people starting, you know, their expectations for what the bicycle can do for them and how they can use it as true transportation changing, as you're saying. Just thinking about the role that retailers can play to help promote e-bikes as a means of transportation, I would imagine it's like stocking civilized cycles or stocking bikes that do speak to this. Thoughts just about that, Zach? Yeah, I actually think retailers have an incredibly critical role to play because I think that, you know, as you have an object that is both physical and complex, you know, people A, want to touch it more and B, it's going to require service. And C, as the use case changes, and, and we're already seeing this in component design having to change and so forth, the use goes up. You know, people who ride e-bikes ride them twice as often, twice as far. They grind through parts faster. You know, they just wear and tear. So I think that the on-the-ground dealer is actually a, a critical link in the chain because without service and support and without some on-site, you know, hands-on education, touching and feeling and experience, it's very difficult to get people from the shift from the theory that an e-bike is just a fun toy. Oh, look, I don't have to pedal to like, oh, this is actually something that fits into my life that other people are already reliably using happily, you know, saving money, having better time with their kids, you know, avoiding nasty commutes, all that stuff. I think that the local retailers role in that is frankly critical because without boots on the ground to support that and to shepherd people into that experience, it's just a very high barrier for folks to enter, particularly folks who are not cyclists, right? Like, I remember the dominant experience of 10 years ago going into a bicycle shop was the moment they figured out you weren't a cyclist, you were kind of left on the side. And what I love is that now that's starting to shift and you go more and more into a wider range of bike shops and they'll be like, what are you here for? What is it you're looking for? And you can be like, I just want to get around and take my kids to school. Like, great. I'd love to help you. We have some solutions for you rather than like, oh, well, there's a three speed in the corner you can look at, you know, like. So I love that that shift is going on. And, you know, it's been really interesting as the open dealers seeing, you know, the kind of different perspectives on this. You can see there's dealers who have, have built great businesses off their sports and leisure. And they're maybe a little skeptical about their, that there's another market out there that they're not familiar with. And then there's these pure plays who are like the sports and leisure guys are they're eating all the lunch for that. We're going to just do the transportation. And they seem to really get it. And I, I see a lot of growth there and, and a lot of opportunity for us. Yeah, I could not agree more. It's like you have to see the product and visualize it and going to your local retailer and actually talking about how you could use this bike in your life as a mode of transportation is definitely. And then wrapping it up with the service side of things. So speaking of retailers, I know you're currently building out a retailer base across the U.S., correct? Yes. Awesome. All right. How's that going for you? How's the response been so far? <laughs> so far, the response has been pretty positive. I think that the challenge for us is that we are so different that it's a bit of a head scratcher for people who are very fully wedded to the traditional bike game. So it takes a little more explanation as to what our value proposition is, who our customers are. I think that you know our success very much mirrors the two groups that we were just talking about, the folks who are transportation 
and sort of non-cyclist oriented, those guys kind of get it instantly. The light bulb comes on. They're like, oh, it's like a car. I get it. We'll do that. You know, let's rock and roll. The folks who are the more traditional bike dealers who have built their business off of, you know, a really strong mountain biking clientele or a road biking clientele, you know, they're a little bit of a harder push to get them to understand that their customers have a wide range of needs, right? The same person who has a $10,000 road bike because they're really passionate about that, they might also have an 11-year-old who needs to go to school and, you know, they're just not going to do that on their road bike. So, you know, we actually think that it's kind of a what we've seen in our customer side is it's it's often the people who have kind of ridden everything, you know, from your one-speed beach cruiser to your superbike motorcycle. And this is kind of like a Goldilocks of like what's actually useful in an urban environment where you don't have to wear like 10 layers of armor and ride some giant hot thing, but rather you can still have fun. You can still have that romantic experience of having your partner with you, you know, whispering in your ear while you go somewhere or, you know, hanging out with your kids. You can kind of do some of these more social and more human things that would otherwise be restricted on a strictly one person, you know, bike. So uh, it's a little bit of a heavier lift there, but you know, that's why we're here. We're trying to get, get people to understand that the market that's ahead of us is much more like the car market than it is like the bike market. And that's what I think we should all be really excited about because the car market is much bigger and it's much wider. And, you know, it's funny at the beginning, I think a lot of people looked at electrification as like a cheating technology, like somehow if you were using a motor, you weren't being enough of an athlete or something. And my whole argument is all of these technologies should be viewed as access technologies in the same way that the automatic transmission or the starter motor was for the car. You know, when you had to start cars with a giant crank in the front, the number of people who would buy cars was quite small. And then they came up with a starter motor. You could push a button and the car would start. And the number of people who could buy cars suddenly went way up. And then when they invented the automatic transmission so that, you know, that group of people who just hated, you know, figuring out how to shift a clutch and move the lever around, suddenly the market got that much bigger again. So I see these, you know, things like suspension and electrification. These are things that enable a much wider range of people to access our products and access this really awesome solution for getting around and doing stuff in life for for pretty much everything that's under 10 miles. You know, it's really, really hard to beat an e-bike. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, we just came back from Cab to West. I know there's a motorcycle trade show happening in Las Vegas soon. And we're seeing the e-bike market, just new retailers coming into it because consumer expectations are changing where they're using these bicycles. So I I hope that, you know, maybe our listeners might reach out to you and, and learn more about the brand and just expanding into that category. Your website does a great job, civilizedcycles.com backslash our story. A great job talking about the history of civilized cycles, the initial prototypes, the process of how the idea was born. But for our listeners, maybe who aren't on the website right now, could you just give us like a quick overview of your history? You you spoke a little bit to it earlier. And then just how civilized cycles was born and what that looked like. Sure. So I am a long time passionate two-wheeler, four-wheeler, if it had a motor, if it could catch on fire, you could crash it. I loved it. Like that was me as a kid. And I went to a mechanic school. I went to art school. I went to business school. And, you know, I went to business school mostly because as I was working as a mechanic, my sort of environmental consciousness started to rise. I, I was realizing how poisonous all the chemicals I was working with were every day. I was watching my older coworkers with health problems and 
you know, it just made it very, very clear to me that this thing that I loved, I kind of had to be part of killing <laughs> that, you know, the time of the petrol engine, it just has to go as much as I love it. You know, it's time needs to sunset. And, you know, I went to business school because I didn't really quite know how to do that. I was in the dot-com bubble, the towers fell, we lost our jobs and my wife and I lost our jobs. But our answer was we decided actually we had just bought a Vespa and it was like the perfect way to get around cross town. You could park it anywhere. You could put two people on it. It was really fun. And so we decided in the wake of 9-11 to open the Vespa dealership. And by 2007, we were the largest Vespa dealership in the country. It was a really fun, glamorous business. And 2008 rolled around. We had the wave of recession and Vespa corporate decided that they wanted to go public and stuff the channel. And so they opened five new dealers in about a two-mile circle around us in 2008. And we had a big like, oh, moment. And we added all of the electric and transportation-oriented bicycle stuff that we could find and tried to create a brand around green transportation. And frankly, we were just really, really early. You know, we had the very first Stromers. We had the very first Ultra Motors. You know, we learned a lot from that experience. We had the first extra cycles. We were the first zero electric motorcycle dealer on the East Coast. We looked for electric scooters, but we couldn't find any that were, were good enough to sell at the time. And we put all this stuff on the floor and we just watched our customers play Goldilocks all day long. It was like, oh, we we love the suspension and the comfort of the Vespa and the fact that I could put two people on it and there's a little trunk. That's great. I don't want anything to do with that gas, oil, or the DMV. Oh, it's a motorcycle. I need a motorcycle license. I don't want that. It's too heavy. It's, you know, I, if it knocks over, it spills gas on my floor. I can't bring it into the apartment. And they're like, oh, I love this cargo bike. It's so cool. Look, I could put my kids on it, but I can't put my wife on it. And I, it's pretty uncomfortable over this speed. And it was literally just hearing this again and again. My customer is saying they wanted these elements, these basic elements of two people, carry some stuff, no license, no registration, make it easy. That's what they heard again and again and again. And so basically I had the vision of, you know, what is happening technologically? This is something that we can do with where batteries and motor tech is headed and we started, you know, drawing pictures. I hired a kid out of uh, Rhode Island School of Design to help me make it pretty. And we started showing it to our customers. And it was funny because we did this for about, only did it for about eight weeks. But when we showed our customers this bike, the effect on the sales floor was to have customers say, well, I'll just wait for that. I'm not going to buy the Vespa today. I'm not going to buy the extra cycle today. I'm not going to buy the Stromer today. I'll just wait for that. When is that going to be ready? And I'm like, this is a drawing on a napkin. Like, come on, guys. You know, can't you buy this up you got today? But you know, after we stopped showing it to customers because it was hurting sales, we really knew we had something. So, you know, long story short, you know, I filed some patents, did some more design drawings, you know, messed around. 2016, we finally sold that business and said, we're doing this full time. 2020. We were ready for production in March. Um, not great timing for us. Obviously, everything kind of shut down, <laughs> which was problematic. But I think the fact that we're here today, two years later, is a testament to the fact that we've got something special and different. And you know, it's not just a bike with a motor, you know, competing on price point. It's a truly different experience and a different value proposition. And you know, we've got bikes in country and we're finally selling, and it's super, super exciting. Nobody knows your bike shops better than you, but the people who might come the closest are other bike shop owners who are facing the same day-to-day -day and long-term challenges that you are. Joining a P2 group is one of the most affordable ways to take a deep dive into your business alongside other bike shop owners who are experts in what you do. 
Reach out today so we can tell you more about how a P2 group can make a difference in your business. Great explanation of, and I love how you just put that out there with the napkin and everything. And listeners, definitely do head to the website. You, There's images, great, great photos, just so much there. I mean, any surprises, Zach? Like, I mean, 2020 to now, getting to know the bike industry, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the biggest surprises have been, you know, it's really more of a life lesson, I think, than than about the bike industry per se. And that is you know, timing is really, really important. <laughs> so, you know, that's been, I think that the most challenging lesson is just then our, our timing has not been awesome in terms of when we've been ready for, for the world, the world hasn't been ready for us and vice versa. But I think that the big takeaway for me is that this is a really vibrant, thriving industry that, you know, attracts a lot of people with tremendous passion. And, you know, that is for both good and for bad. And I think we all know that this is kind of a double-edged sword. The great thing is that that people have strong opinions, that care a lot. The bicycle retailers, you know, take a lot of pride in what they do. And I think that's, you know, all very, very, very positive things. I think the challenge has been for us is I think a challenge that is in every industry that is going through a lot of change, which is that people are always looking to understand, you know, which of the changes that are coming are the ones that they want to align with and, and you know, they have to place their bets. And so, you know, our job as a company is to show people why why those bets are well placed on us and why we have, you know, something that isn't really going to appeal to their customers and hopefully try to get people to to shift their thinking a little bit in sort of the realm of the possible, you know, particularly the traditional bike retailers who who have done very well and who've been, you know, focused executors on their businesses, don't change a thing. Like what you're doing is great, but there's a whole nother huge opportunity out there for you. And it's, I, I kind of make the joke sometimes, it's like the, the bike industry, you know, is a little bit like as if the auto industry only sold dune buggies and convertibles, right? That we don't sell, you know, where are the sedans, where are the SUVs, where are the, you know, economy cars. And we're starting to see that in the market now. And I think that there's a couple of brands that are staking out, you know, some of those positions, but it's, you know, if you look at a mature market like the car industry, you know, there's a, a pretty wide range of segments. And if you look where the volume is, it's not in the sports cars and it's not in the dune buggies, right? The volume is in the Ford F-150 pickup trucks, the SUVs and the sedans. That's where the volume is. So so the, the open question remains and, you know, we're throwing our hat in the ring is, is whose space is that going to be? And I think that the the dealers who see that that is a, a market to chase from a kind of a scale and a buyer type point of view are going to do very well over time because I think that's where the volume is headed. I'm definitely picking up what you're throwing down, Zach. I love the way that you're looking at the industry and your viewpoints it expands the mind, if you would. So you're warehousing in the U.S. now, is that correct? You're you're here. Yep. You have product here. Yeah, but we have a warehouse currently in California. We're actually evaluating if that's the best place for us, just from a, a cost and logistics point of view. But yeah, we successfully landed our first container. That was a, a super heavy lift. But those bikes are actually all en route to dealers and customers already. We have another build uh, happening in March. So yeah, we're really excited to finally be able to deliver. You know, for me personally, it was incredibly frustrating and painful to to be so ready and unable to actually, you know, sell to customers. So this moment for us is really, really gratifying. 
Congratulations. And I've met Mark, who's on your team, and he works closely with us at the MBDA. How many people do make up the team at Civilized Cycles? And do you work with brand reps or what should retailers expect? Yeah, so you know we're a, a very small company that we you know had to keep things very very lean through the Corona times when when we couldn't get bikes built, but we are a team of essentially four right now. There's me, there's Mark Liu, who's my chief revenue officer. There is Mike Fritz, who is my director of production. He is an industry veteran who's been doing this a long time, and I have a, a designer Zoltan Kiss who is sort of like my right arm and who helps turn all of the things that I talk about into into metal and and parts. And then we have an extended relationship with a manufacturer in Taiwan where the bikes are built. And then mostly like a satellite of various other parties who help us, but aren't necessarily full-time employees. In terms of dealers, you know, as of the next three months, you get to work right with the top because we are very, very focused on creating a good experience. And of course, on getting as much feedback as we can to constantly iterate that. You know, we we know that the getting something right the very first time you do it is very infrequent. <laughs> so we we expect to do this and then do it again and then talk to our customers and our dealers and then do it again. And so we're right now very, very close to the ground on that. So, you know, I remember when I was a retailer that the one of the things that frustrated me most was when we had very, very clear product feedback from our customers and we would take that to the manufacturer and it would just fall on deaf ears and, you know, they would just ignore us. And I've actually had many retailers that I've talked to have that same complaint of like, you know, hey, we have a great product idea. Our customers are telling us they want to do A, B, and C, or they want this change on the bike. The manufacturer never listens. Well, we want to listen because we think that the, you know, I know having been a retailer that the people who are closest to the customer know what the customers want. And you're not going to dictate that from a from a great distance. You, you got to listen. So we kind of hold that out there as one of the things that maybe makes us different at least until we're giant, is that, you know, you can get me or Mark and give us very direct feedback and you can have confidence that that feedback will be acted on quickly. Yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with a couple of the names on your team there, and those are pretty fantastic people who are super knowledgeable and I'd say top level. Let's dive into the way you do work with retailers, because I know through our multiple conversations that it's really important to you that you offer a program to retailers and and you work with retailers to truly make a wow experience. And like you were just speaking about that feedback, but I know there's multiple ways that are unique as far as even helping retailers with the marketing in their area. So could you just explain a little bit about your retailer program, you yeah. know, how those interested might learn more? So again, framing this conversation by I was a retailer first, you know, I very much had a retailer perspective going into all of this. And one of the things that I remember being a, kind of constant pain point, you know, over the last 10 years has been the process of of people trying to figure out how do they exist in retail with a direct sales world, right? Where manufacturers suddenly seem like they're competing with you. And, you know, we very much did not want an antagonistic relationship and we did not want a, a zero sum relationship. We very much wanted to create a program that aligned dealers' interests and our interests. And that's really self-interest because one of the things I saw as a retailer was when our manufacturers didn't cooperate with us or they treated us badly or they ignored us, that wound up on the sales floor. Like it was just very, very clear. You know, if we had someone come in and complain about a service problem the manufacturer wasn't addressing, that didn't just stay in the service department. They went to their salesman and complained about it. And their salesman didn't want to push that product anymore. 
So we know that having dealers happy with us is super, super important because that is what creates the action on the sales floor. So we wanted to make sure when we did a program that it was aligning our interests rather than making us competitors. So we brought some things from the motorcycle and automotive world for that. And then we took some things that are starting to happen in the bicycle world and we kind of put them together. So on the sales side, you know, we partnered with Beeline to do their integration where, you know, we can now on our website, direct customers directly to dealers for fulfillment. That's great. And I think it's wonderful for dealers to have an opportunity to make a couple hundred bucks on fulfillment. But we think there's actually a much bigger opportunity. You know, if we have a dealer in a market who is actively pushing our product and who is demonstrating product and keeping one on the floor, we know that the sale that we make online in their market was enabled by that dealer, even if the customer never went in there. Because that dealer's presence gave our customer confidence to buy the bike. That dealer's presence made them know that it was that we were a real company, not just some fly-by-night dropshipping. That dealer's presence means that when the customer has a problem, and it's not an if because these are mechanical things, when they have a problem, a flat tire, it means there's someone there who is happy to see them rather than viewing them as a pain in the neck. I remember as a dealer, we would get people who would come in, like, I just bought this stupid bike on the internet. It's broken. Can you help me? And, you know, that was not an opportunity to acquire in a customer. That was an opportunity to acquire a headache because you couldn't get sales and service and parts and all the other things that were there. And I know other dealers have dealt with this. We want our dealers, when someone walks in the door, to be like, awesome, Bob, I've never met you, but you're already my customer and I'm going to take great care of you. So for our stocking dealers, we actually pay a territory commission. So if you buy something on our website, even if you've never walked into the dealer in that territory, we're going to give you a cut of that that makes it worth your while to treat that customer like gold when they walk in the door. So that's that's one piece we brought. The second piece we were bringing, and you know, this has been interesting to see how people receive this because we really get a lot of kind of head scratcher kind of looks to this, but. You know, in my experience, when I was a retailer, the way that the bike industry typically handled warranty was they mail you a part and that was kind of it. And if you fussed a lot, maybe they would pay you a warranty labor to put that part on. But that warranty labor rate was maybe not very good. You know, it certainly wasn't as good as you were getting from the customer who's walking in the door and paying retail. So we wanted to bring in something from the automotive and and motorcycle industry, which is that we treat warranty like any other customer that walks in your door so that when you make a decision as a business of whether I'm going to fix this warranty part on this bike, or I'm going to take care of this customer in front of me who's paying full retail, you're not hurting yourself in that decision. You're not cutting your own throat by walking away from $25 of a margin on the part or from the your full fair shop rate that you are charging your customers. You know, For when it comes to warranty, we pay normal parts markup and a normal shop warranty rate. So whatever your posted labor rate is, that's what we're going to pay. And in terms of time, we're going to use a flat rate manual that is something we develop with our dealers to make sure that it's fair. You know, so we know that a changing a tire or you know swapping out a chain tensioner hanger takes 15 minutes. If you've done it 10 times, it takes half an hour. If you've done it once, you know, you're going to get paid 20 minutes on that or 25. You know, we're going to come up with that right number that's mutually agreed. But that flat rate thing, you know, the main goal from our point of view is A, we want good signals on warranty and good signal means dollars, right? That what can we do to control our dollars on the factory end to make sure we're not paying out warranty? Not at the dealer end. At the dealer end, we want to pay it very generously because that's our signal to know that there's an issue that needs to be addressed. So that's another area where we've kind of flipped this on. It's, you know, a little bit different than how other people are doing it. The last thing is on marketing and co-op. You know, we like to work with our dealers who 
are actively marketing. Like if you're not doing anything, if you're just hanging a shingle and you're you're just waiting for business to come in, we don't have a lot of data to how to support you. But if you're actively marketing and you know what works, our philosophy is we're going to come and just help you step on the gas for for what you've proven already. So if you know that local press works for you, you know, we'll write you press releases, we'll try to arrange for demo unit test rides. You know, if you know that Facebook ads are your jam, you know, we'll throw some budget towards that. But it's very much a a one-to-one relationship on that. And we have this big advantage, which is that Mark has spent the last 13 years running a digital marketing agency, and he's extremely expert in this stuff. So you, in a way, kind of get a free digital marketing consultant who is going to bring best practices from all of our dealers together Mm -hmm. as we grow them and learn them combined with all the stuff that we collect from our dealers that we know is already working. So we're going to have a pretty good sort of intelligence on what what works and what doesn't and some budget to back it up. Seems, I would say, more than fair. It seems progressive. I mean, what are the retailers saying that you're working with? They must just be like, wow, this is not typical, right? <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely a little bit like, you know, what's the catch? You know, <laughs> um, right. is it too good to be true on some things? But, you know, I think once that we explain the rationale behind it, it starts to make more sense, right? Because, you know, we're a a premium product with a lot of features that can only be touched and experienced. Like you can't, you can tell people about magical ride quality all day long Mm -hmm. and no one really knows what it is until they've actually run over a giant bumper pothole and not been disturbed. Like, or they've just had that psychological sense of well-being of like, I don't really quite know why I feel so good on this bike but I do. And it's because you're not being bounced around and jostled and, and, and frightened and so forth. But, you know, those are things that dealers have a unique advantage in being able to, to deliver to the customer and that touch, you know, here's how the pennier opens and closes. Here's some different ways it works in your life. Here's how, here's what this actually, you know, you know oh, you, your, your issue is you're uncomfortable on every bike because you're a bigger person. I, you know, this is the one we want to try you on because you're going to find it's the most comfortable bike you've ever been on. You know, that's something only a dealer can do. We can we can put those things on the website all day long. And we do have people who buy directly from us, you know, based on what we put on the website. But we know that for most people at this price point, you know, there's going to be a want to touch it. I want backup. I want a dealer there. And once dealers understand why we see their value proposition so clearly, then they then they're then they're in. Yeah. And I know from firsthand experience, like you really believe exactly what you're saying right now, because when I came to New York City and I was like, oh, just tell me about the bike. You're like, no, I'm bringing one so you can actually ride it and see it for yourself. And I was like, you don't have to go through that trouble, but you did. And then when I wrote it and I saw it, I was like, oh my God, yes, this is amazing. So it is that moment. And the retailer plays a really important role in that use words like it feels amazing it feels awesome but that doesn't mean anything until you're actually experiencing it yeah you really you know you ride back to it's funny we did a a demo for a young woman who's joined our our pr team and she's like yeah you know i know e-bikes are kind of the buzz and the thing and she she took ours out and she's like yeah okay i'm getting it this is really fun and i'm like okay so what you don't realize is you've been riding around on one of the worst roads in new york city let me just give you a regular bike and i handed her like the most comfortable Electra beach cruiser that we've got. And she made it 50 feet down the road before she turned around. She's like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that again. <laughs> She's like, nope, over. And spoiled her fully. So that's what we're going for. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many of you have had the experience of riding in an electric car. But for me, 
even as a gearhead who loves all things with big gas motors, going back to a gas motor after riding an electric car kind of feels primitive. It just feels like, why would you do it this way if you could have this silent, smooth, effortless experience instead? Why would you do that? So that's what we're hoping to bring with the suspension size. Once you, we're hoping that once you've experienced it, a, a rigid bike, you know, doesn't feel right anymore. And this is something people got to do. That's that's our hope. So what about 2023? I mean, we're in it. So what's the plan? Like, if we're talking in December of this year, what will success have looked like for for civilized cycles? Well, we will have dealers in both coasts of the country. We will have bikes flowing to customers in a steady state. And then we're also, you know, working on all of the next models. So we have a whole technology path on this bike and on future models. You know, the goal is to have a a lower price point bike in the future. But on this bike, there's still a lot of really, really cool stuff that we're going to bring from the automotive world to the bicycle world that, again, are all access technologies that make the bike ownership experience easier, the operation easier, and just kind of open it to a to an ever wider pool of folks who otherwise would not get on a bicycle or, or, or who fear a bike is not for them because it's either too hard or too much sacrifice or doesn't add enough value. We've got really cool stuff in the pipeline I can't quite talk about yet, but we've got a lot of tech and a lot of cool ideas that I've not seen elsewhere in the bike industry yet. It's still ahead of us. I really like your energy. I'm really excited that you're in the industry. And I'm sure you're going to have some listeners who are like, oh my God, I want to pick his brain about transportation or or whatnot. What is the best way if someone wants to get in contact with you, either to sign up as a retail partner or just to chat bikes? Sure. So if you're interested in being a retail partner, I'd probably say talk to Mark first and you can just email him at Mark, M-A-R-C at Civilized Cycles. He's running our dealer development and is super knowledgeable on that. If you want to nerd out about bikes and production and things like that, I'm your guy. You can, I hesitate to give out email addresses, but in the short term, I think it's fine. You know, this audience, uh, Zach, Z-A-C-H at civilizedcycles.com. Feel free to drop me an email. I will do my best to, to answer that in the deluge of emails that I get, but happy to chat with folks about all sorts of things. Zach, are you loving what you're doing right now? Like, is it, you wake up every day and it's just full on. Yeah. And amazingly, you know, (laughs) yes, I still believe we're bringing something special and important into the world. You know, for me personally, you know, I don't talk a lot about the environmental aspects of e-biking because I don't think it really drives markets and I don't think it really drives behavior very much. But for me, it's incredibly important because, you know, I, I think that our industry is doing some of the most important work in the United States right now by getting people out of cars and providing, you know, alternate solutions that are better that don't involve guzzling huge amounts of gas to, you know, go buy a quart of milk three miles away. And that to me is very, very motivating. And, you know, what I love about this job is, is that this is the culmination of sort of everything that I've done in my life has kind of brought me to this point where this is the task I have in the world that, you know, I can put my, my shoulder against the karmic wheel and, and feel that I'm doing something, you know, pushing the world in the right direction where we're moving away from fossil fuels in what I think is the most effective way, which is make it an upgrade, right? As soon as it's an upgrade from what you're doing, fossil fuels, who cares? We don't need to get into a debate about, you know, left versus right or, you know, green versus coal rollers or any of that stuff. Doesn't really matter. Like what matters is if we deliver better experiences, better solutions, and they happen to be green, then we're winning. 
So that motivates me every day. And and any moment that I'm like, ah, oh, this is so frustrating. This is so difficult. I just return to why, and then I'm fired up again. Yeah. I sympathize. This is not an easy time uh, trying to bring a brand to retailers. I know many retailers are sitting with a lot of inventory right now, but I can tell you listeners, you know, if you're thinking about expanding into this category, which I feel like you should definitely consider. I know it's easy to get started. There's not a big ask that Zach and his team are putting out there. So Zach, thank you for being a part of the MBDA, for coming on the podcast, for sharing your knowledge. I really hope our listeners don't blow up your inbox, or maybe I do. I'm not quite sure. (laughs) Go right ahead. But and, Zach, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. And if you want to talk about the physics of suspension and body mass and, and all of that, I'll be happy to bend your ear as to why, like, particularly for, you know, one of the things that I didn't get to touch on, and I just kind of want to bring this back up again, because one thing I've seen across the bicycle industry is that we tend to have a pretty strong body type across the industry, right? Like cyclists tend to be smaller, fitter, leaner people. And a lot of that has to do with the activity, right? But if we want to make this an industry that is accessible to the masses of Americans, we really need to think about inclusivity in all across body types and and how people really are. The average American man is 200 pounds and the average American woman is 170 pounds. And for many, many people who are, you know, that normal size, Bicycles are really uncomfortable and unpleasant just because of the laws of physics. You got a large mass on top and a smaller mass underneath. If you're on a rigid bike, that small mass tends to stab that large mass harder because the large mass doesn't get out of the way. It's just physics. The beautiful thing about suspended vehicles, cars, bicycles, whatever, is that flips on its head. And the moment you have a suspension, the more mass you have on top, the better it rides. So, you know, for fully suspended bikes, when you put someone who is kind of a bigger person on it, they're going to have this amazing experience, better experience than me on how smooth the bike rides because of that flip in the physics. And I'm hoping that the advent of this technology, whether it's us or others, but more common suspension is going to allow kind of more regular Americans and more a wider range of body types to, to get on bikes and be comfortable and be happy in that experience. And, you know, we all know what happens once you start riding is that you just want to ride more. And that's health and fitness and all those other good things that that follow on. But if the initial experience is painful and miserable, really hard to get people over that hump. So that's just one thing I just wanted to touch on as an opportunity and a current barrier to many, many riders. I'm so glad you brought that up. We really do need to continue to expand the word cyclists and how we're welcoming a more diverse group into our industry and making it easy and enjoyable, comfortable, safe. Yeah. And if you're wondering whether your customers our customers who care about comfort. All you have to do is look at how many gigantic saddles you sell because people are trying to solve that problem or how many times you have customers that walk into your into your store and point at the bike with the biggest fattest tires and say I think I want that one even if you know they're not going to be riding a, a snow fat bike but if they're saying that what they're what this is the consumer signal that what they really want is something that doesn't beat them up. So listen for those signals and and those will be signs that your customers are looking for comfort. Definitely. Yeah. I definitely remember the days when I had the shop of those, those bigger saddles that we couldn't keep on the wall for sure. Zach, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. It was a real pleasure speaking with you and I hope it was helpful and informative for everyone. All right, listeners, that is it. Thank you for listening to Bicycle Retail Radio. This podcast is designed specifically for the bicycle industry. 
dedicated to strengthening our retailers and cycling community. If it is your first episode, we urge you to take the time and listen to our past episodes. Support the show by first subscribing, then share your favorite episode online with friends. You can go one step further and leave a review. It helps members of our industry find our podcast. Special thanks to NBDA Development Director, Rochelle Scouten, for editing and promotional graphics. Music provided by Joel Picard.